ignoring. Sadly, we live in a world dominated by a fear of missing out, or FOMO. And in the last 10 years, U.S. equities and bonds have outperformed and generated massive amounts of FOMO. This hasn't always been the case. In the mid-2000s, the best-performing markets were international equities, especially emerging markets, golden commodities. So what happens if growth collapses and inflation becomes the new norm? Or what if the U.S. dollar collapses and U.S. assets are no longer attractive? What will the new FOMO markets be? And will your portfolio keep up or be left behind? Enter Rational Resolve Adaptive Asset Allocation Fund, ticker RDMIX, a strategy that is designed to thrive across different markets and economic regimes. Unlike most traditional strategies that keep allocation static and let volatility happen, Adaptive Asset Allocation applies a proprietary systematic process designed to dynamically transition toward thriving asset classes and eliminate those that are not, all the while aiming for consistent volatility and stable returns. There's almost always a bull market somewhere in the world. Don't let yesterday's FOMO get in the way of tomorrow's opportunities. Instead, let Adaptive Asset Allocation help you fill in your domestic portfolio gaps. To learn more, visit RationalMF.com and check out the Rational Resolve Adaptive Asset Allocation Fund. Hello and welcome to Gestalt University, hosted by Adam Butler, Mike Philbrick, and Rodrigo Gordillo of Resolve Asset Management Global. This podcast will dig deep to uncover investment truths and life hacks you won't find in mainstream media, covering topics that appeal to left-brain robots, right-brain poets, and everything in between, all with the goal of helping you reach excellence. Welcome to the journey. Mike Philbrick, Adam Butler, Rodrigo Gordillo are principals of Resolve Asset Management Global. Due to industry regulations, no funds managed or sub-advised by the host will be discussed in this podcast. All opinions expressed by the host are solely their own opinion and do not express the opinion of Resolve Asset Management. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as basis for investment decisions. For more information, visit investresolve.com. And we're back. Welcome back, everyone. Yeah. It's been so long that I've seen you in these little squares. That's right. I've gone for a couple of months. Now we're back with uh, with a vengeance. Some interesting <laughs> topics, hopefully, and some great guests coming down the pike in the last, next few weeks. I'm really excited about. That's true. We uh, booked some yeah. real um, timely guests as well over the next few weeks. The lineup's looking rich. Yeah. Um, Mike, do you still know how to do it? Yeah, I was about to say. Yeah, Mike, how do I still know how to do it? Am I okay? Am I coming through? You're coming, you're coming through, through, you're coming through, your video's coming through delayed for yeah, whatever weird. reason, but I think anyway. we can get through it. I'm delayed video today. <laughs> That's the comic relief. And now on to everything that we're going to talk about uh, here is for educational and informational purposes and sometimes for humor. So don't make investment decisions based on it. And from there, we can get going. Looks like you're dubbed. Honestly, that's, I'm, I'm that's in an old-fashioned yeah. Chinese Western, right? That's right, exactly. Um, yeah, so today's theme is uh, CTAs and managed futures. And um, there has been some really great and, and provocative notes and comments and podcasts. Obviously, managed futures and trend following have garnered a lot of attention this year because they have, um, I think, been one of the only strategy classes that have been able to deliver for the most part um, during a period when stocks and bonds um, have had a really rough time and over the last few months when when even commodities have um, have had 
sort of gyrating performance with certain sectors um, going up, while other sectors are going down and, and in aggregate sort of slowly sliding lower. So um, we thought it was super timely. Obviously, Resolve specializes in managed futures type strategies. And um, so we thought it would be a really good opportunity to touch on multiple dimensions of how investors think about, about using managed futures and maybe some aspects of the style that um, people don't normally consider or think about. So, well, well, Adam, I think you, you hit, you, you triggered me right out of the gate with your, your uh, introduction. I mean, tying trend following to managed futures is probably one of the, the most prevalent uh, sort of, Maybe maybe not error, but but misconception in managed future space. Like that is one of the things I think is is really key to kind of think about and talk about today too. Is well, is is trend the only thing that you could do in that context? And what are the other things that you can do with managed futures? So it's it's uh, it's a really interesting um, sort of note to sort of kick it off that yeah, trend following is not just managed future man managed futures is not just trend following yeah there's a taxonomy problem there because i think you, we hear the term cta managed futures trend following all used interchangeably whereas i think we can bring managed futures and ctas a little closer to the same venn diagram uh trend is maybe the most popular but definitely not the only way to pursue uh, an active managed strategy uh, in the future space. So, but I thought a good place for us to start might be for you guys to describe a little bit about your journey into coming into the space. Because I remember earlier in my career in Brazil, obviously futures were an instrument that we would bring to bear in portfolios and we knew of their existence, but I wouldn't say that we were fully aware of the managed futures category as a type of strategy. And obviously when I moved to Canada, joined Resolve, that became sort of my universe. And then over the last few years, I've spoken to hundreds if not thousands of advisors. And initially I think I assumed that they knew what, they, what this category was and that I've come to realize mm -hmm. that that's not the case at all. And a lot of guys don't know what it is. And so maybe it's useful to set the stage, talk a little bit about how these strategies came about and, and how they rose to prominence. Maybe touch a little bit about the uh, global financial crisis, crisis and, and how they had their real strong moment in the sun before going through a dormant period. Uh, so you guys might kick it off with telling us a little bit about how you guys arrived at the space. Yeah, maybe, Rodrigo is a natural sure. place to start. <clears throat> yeah, I think that I may have been, though correct me if I'm wrong, um, the, the first adopter from the team in the managed future space, right? And this all this came back from reading kind of turtle traders and you know the people in the 70s and 80s these famous traders that would trade technicals on on uh, whatever moving averages and and breakouts in order to get exposure both long and short and the the natural place to get easy liquid access to global diversified ma markets that move differently at different times is the futures space right you can get exposure to uh, equities bonds commodities currencies right so you have a lot of people, when we talk about market timing, which is in a way this is, but when, when the industry talks about market timing, what they're talking about is trying to time the S&P 500. And that's really tough, uh, trying to time a single security, assuming you have an edge, 
you have a very small edge. Let's say it's 51, 52% of the time when you make the trade, you're right. And so you're going to need to suffer a lot in order to see the outcome of a positive equity line uh, over long periods of time, right? So if you are able to move away from that definition of market timing, market timing is good if you're trading 100 different futures contracts because they will all make money over time, but not at the same time, right? So this is kind of where the idea originally kind of started to, to uh, make sense for me. And the, I think when I, was, when I started in the business, the reason that managed futures as a category really attracted me, uh, was attractive to me, was because when you examine the different categories in the, in the alternative space at the time, right? If you go to HFRI and you look through each one of the different regimes or each one of the different mandates, what you are searching for, ideally, if you're trying to allocate to an alternative manager is something that is a zero correlation to your other things, right? So the vast majority of portfolios have your equities, you have your bonds, and they want other, right? And as you examine the long, short alternative space, the merger ARB space, the market neutral space, the private equity, private credit, private real estate, you go all the way down those categories and you realize that they're all just lower beta products, right? They're, they're, they're still tilted towards growth. They are not net neutral, even a market neutral, with the exception of a few modern implementations, you know, um, maybe AQR and a few others. The vast majority, if you look at that category, HFRI, has a correlation of 0.2 to the S&P still, right? So it's just as a diversifier, if you truly want true diversification, you end up at the one category, maybe two categories, actually three categories. So let's get through them. Let's go through them. The, the first category is the CTA trend category. And I think that's a better name for what people consider to be managed futures. Let's, so let's call CTA trend a category that has specific characteristics. Now, then there's the global macro category. That's generally been dominated by fundamental analysis and you know, big uh, swing traders like uh, Soros and Druckenmiller and the like. And then you have your, I would say, the, the least correlated and possibly negative, definitely negative correlated is the dedicated shorts. Okay. Now, long fall strategies. Is that, that, is that part of the category? No, it's just you short, the only, your mandate is to short equities and find good shorts. That's it. Right, it's a strategic uh, positioning is generally for institutions and it's really tough to hold and it's not very large and you're hated as a manager. There's a lot of reasons why you don't see a lot of these. Um, but I think AQR put out a report recently, or I mean, Cliff did, where he talked about the dual mandate. You want something that's uncorrelated and you want something that makes money on average, right? And, and global macro and CTA happen to have a very unique characteristic, which is being lowly correlated to equities and low correlation of bonds. Right? They both have that characteristic and they both tend to make money on average. Okay? And so immediately when you look at all the categories, if you really want to have the biggest bang for your buck in terms of diversification, I ended up very early in my career looking at futures as the option. So that's how I came to, to find them. And indeed, through 08, you know, you're looking at double digit positive returns for the CTA trend category and the global macro category. Um, which helped tremendously in one of the largest equity market drawdowns in history. Right? And we're seeing it again this year. I'll stop talking for now, but I think that's kind of the table I wanted to set. I could show some charts. As you guys know, I love to share my screen. But let me know if, uh, if you want me to do that. I think that's good background. And I think, you know, 
Mike and I came at the category from the perspective of asset allocation and then just sort of thinking about how to expand the number of um, bets in the portfolio, just the number of different um, diversified sources of risk. And then um, once you think about asset allocation from a long only perspective and you try to maximize the number of bets quickly, you, it sort of leads you to into the into futures how can you gain capital efficiency? How can you increase the number of bets in the portfolio even further using individual commodities, um, individual bond market indices around the world, obviously a wide variety of global equity indices and more esoteric markets, right? Um, and then trading long and short and using more techniques than just momentum or trend in order to uh, determine um, your positions, right? Um, so I think that was just a slightly different path to get to the same the same place can i can i just i forgot one very important reason why i liked the managed future space for me right and everybody who's been listening to our podcast knows my story knows how uh, uh, impacted i was by the hyperinflationary regime in peru and being latin american you see it over and over again in argentina and brazil and so one of the key things that really bothered me about market neutral long short all these kind of like pure alpha plays that let's say you can, if you put together a portfolio, a portfolio of a long short um, equity mandate that's actually market neutral and actually long short, what you're really hoping for is a couple of hundred basis points of returns to add on top of your portfolio, right? So it's really tough to make room in your portfolio to merely add a few hundred basis points so that you can have something that's not correlated, right? It really made the most sense to add those as the kind of the, the whipping cream on top of your cake if you're able to use leverage to stack that return on top. But for somebody that cared about inflation, the, the, the inflation risk, when I, whenever I, people would come to me with market neutral strategies, I would say to them, look, they might provide 200, 400 basis points a year no matter what. Let's assume that that's true. What happens in inflation? Like, what's your inflation hedge? Because if we have a 10% year of CPI inflation, and your market neutral and your equities are down, your bonds are down, your market neutral strategies are up 400 basis points, you're still down 600 basis points in real terms if, C, if inflation's at 10%. And the only category that has directionality, aggressive long and short directionality, also seem to be the CTA trend, the global macro categories that had the ability to go very long commodities to, to more than offset the losses in inflation that would help your portfolio kind of become a bit more balanced. So that's another reason when in the alternative space, why I was very attracted to the managed futures space. So you're indirectly touching on another dimension of the problem, which is volatility, right? It's at the level at which how hot you're running a strategy. And then obviously, uh, for those that are familiar with market neutral strategies, those tend to run at a volatility that is typically well below that of the average equity portfolio. And you go back to the problem that if you have a large chunk of your portfolio allocated to equities, you need other components that have a similar level of volatility to be able to offset the portfolio when equities are undergoing a drawdown. So, so that's definitely something that we should talk about. CTAs can come in various different styles and stripes and, and volatility levels as well. Mike, do you want to add anything to, to, to this oh whole God, CTA? So, so much. I know, right? I, I can tell. I cannot believe my part. I want to, I'm like, wah, wah, wah. His tongue about. and his lips man, are bleeding man, over man, there from, man, from biting man. so hard. Oh, my God. <laughs> Is it my turn to talk? Thank God. 
Just hit us so, with it, Mike. Come on. I, I don't know. For me, managed futures <laughs> came to my attention when I read Market Wizards by Schwager. And I was absolutely fascinated by the ability of these managers, uh, all of them of various types and, 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 and sort of styles just have this amazing performance. And, and you know, that leads, leads to the turtle traders and Covell's work and, and those types of things. But that, that's where, you know, I first got interested in that. I mean, I've read Market Wizards for the entertainment side of it as well multiple times and just the different types and approaches right and and personality obviously i think manifests in, in different various trading strategies that the different the different houses have i'll call them houses but um so you know that was kind of what what always had me fascinated and interested and always sort of had me trying to allocate to these types of strategies which by the way we're, we're going back to um gosh sort of the early 90s and so trying to get access to these strategies was an absolute disaster. It was so hard, so expensive. And so and, and then and then you're fighting this constant battle of return chasing because you know the clients want the managed futures in 09, but they won't buy them in 07. Right? Like it, it, it's just this colossal mountain to climb. So, you know, I know that they're in the spotlight and trend following slash managed futures is being tied together in this great thing. The reason there was still only $350 billion in AUM for CTAs this year, which is the same as 10 years ago, is because of the desolate wasteland that lay between those two points, which provides the opportunity to think about allocating the strategy now that you know it's not dead or broken, right? So that you know that. So, so I think it's time for investors to really consider this. It's been around a long time. It's had difficulties in access points, which are now, you know, largely with liquid alternatives across most uh, most uh, regulators, you can get good access to them via regulated products. So um, the, 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 the category hasn't really grown. I think it is the next decade of growth for this, this category and the managed futures category. And, you know, you're going to see lots and bells and whistles added to trend. The trend guys who are still alive God bless you all who are who are solely <laughs> trend. You have made it through the labyrinth, and um, you know. So my history has been one of, um, you know, uh, what, what what's the trading tribe and uh, you know our, our our partner Jason who makes an Ed Sakota Ed Sakota right. Um, yeah, we've we've taken it to that length at at times and and been experiencing those types of things. And it's an it really is the discipline and rigor that you bring to your positioning and the constant updating, I think provide true value. And then you start to, I'm sure we're going to talk today about trends, trends, a factor that you could build into your managed future strategy, but the global macro area has a lot of multi-strat. So managed futures is a much more broader um, opportunity of investment. And then you got to think through what is, why am I putting this strategy in here? Am I looking for it to be like, like you said, a long vol strategy, Richard, is it, supposed to work right away is it supposed to be non-correlated in a diversifier um is it supposed to be a mix of things you know because i know we we in our products do mix some things together is it a combination of alpha and beta and then which beta and how do you manage what types of alpha 
I, I digress. That's my that's yeah. my so so yeah, and I, I will say that one of the major reasons we know a lot about futures in depth is the uh, our, you know CEO Resolve Canada Jason Russell not only uh, saw and read all the same books you did Mike but he was he was one of the first pioneers in Canada to be able to offer it to retail and yeah. retail product right and with his uh, well with and Nick, I was one of Nick, the first uh, investors in that. To invest in that fund, that's right. And Nick, so was Adam, yeah. um, Marcos, who's our uh, trader for Resolve, has also been around dealing with this stuff for, for a few decades, right? So lots of depth in, uh, in the team. And I think they, they did teach us a lot uh, about the, the, uh, the actual back end of futures, for sure. Yeah. Uh, so guys, maybe we now talk a little bit about this elephant in the room, right? This, this uh, decade-long hiatus uh, that trend following slash CTA slash managed futures uh, strategies in aggregate went uh, went through between uh, 09 and then 2020. Uh, so really 11 years. And Adam, I, I've heard this described as, as sort of this you know, central bank dominated era and, and the Fed primarily being the trend killer. And they were actively trying to keep, uh, you know, the market afloat back in 09, but then so sort of trying to create this uh, maestro orchestrated type of, of environment and then affecting price discovery in, in, in broad asset classes to, to a meaningful degree. So, so maybe we can talk a little bit about that, what really created the mechanics that created this hiatus in performance and, and, and why we see it a little bit different this time. I think it's a really good example that highlights the mechanics of traditional trend strategies, right? And let's keep in mind that that managed futures trend has been around since the early 70s. And typically, these managers are running breakout strategies. So has the, the price of a futures market broken above the highest price over the past 20 days or below the lowest price over the past 20 days or 60 days or 200 days, et cetera? And, you know, there's all kinds of bells and whistles. You've got to have not just a breakout, but it's got to break out, you know, on higher volume or it's got to break out a certain number of standard deviations above these thresholds, et cetera. And, you know, this type of trend following strategy is typically characterized by the stuff that, for example, Jerry Parker runs at Chesapeake, right? He's one of the uh, original turtle traders. He's one of the last ones to be continuously trading for the past 40 years using, I think, certainly very similar fundamental thinking um, over that over that full time period. And I like the way he characterizes this approach as outlier hunting. Right. And outlier hunting is effective when there are a meaningful number of outlier events. Well, how does how do outlier events happen? They happen when markets become dislocated, price becomes dislocated. There's a, a, um, an asymmetric um, jump between the buyers and the sellers that occurs at a certain price point. And one of the express purposes, if not the express purpose of central banks, um, especially over the post-2009 period, was to reduce volatility. Whenever there was a major systemic event. And typically those systemic events over that period occurred in financial markets, not in commodity markets. Whenever there were major systemic events, the Fed stepped in and contained it. 
right? And so we just had very, very few outliers. And, you know, while other trend following programs that maybe have evolved since the turtle traders probably don't adhere as purely to that outlier hunting breakout type of approach, any sort of time series momentum or moving average crossover type system is going to respond to a similar kind of market dynamic, which is major moves that persist far be, far longer and far further than anybody expected. And so I think it's reasonable to expect that given that the Fed was expressly um, working to short circuit those dislocations over that time period, and they were effective and able to do that because those the dislocations that occurred were in financial markets, which is where the Fed is able to effectively, or at least has so far effectively been able to operate and not in commodities where you're now dealing with real things instead of money and bits, then it was able to control things. The difference now is that the source of much of the volatility and um, consternation in markets is coming from real things, commodities, supply chains, et cetera. And the Fed has very little control over those things. And so, you know, I think that's why we're seeing a lot more outlier events over the last year or so, and pure trend strategies have been the best performers. To your point on the commodity side uh, in the last decade is that and in the Fed's inability to control it is that it really did march to the tune of, of its own drum. It, it, it flatlined because I guess it was a disinflationary environment, but in 2013, 2014, it had a massive collapse. And that was the best year for trend following right. and, and, and futures mm-hmm. because it's, well, everything else was going up. It did its it was own thing and it happened to have a prolonged and persistent negative yeah. trend that yeah. CTA managers were able to capitalize on, right? So, uh, I mean, there was a few shiny moments while the Fed kept a tight grip on, on financial markets. Um, but, you know, once commodities, and, and they were doing their own thing. They just happened to be mostly flat, except for that period. And now they're doing their own thing again. They happen to be mostly up for this period. So the question yeah. is one of dispersion, right? I mean, essentially, we've had what has been coined as the only game in town, right? The, 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 this dynamic where everybody was allocating to a handful of growth equities and those were sucking most of the liquidity. And then everything else was sort of not trending in any particular direction, sort of flatlining or just kind of oscillating around a mean. I would add that geopolitically, the world did go through a bit of a a, uh, calmer period after 08 or 09. uh, And that seems to be, well, I'm sure there are places on the planet that would beg to differ, but I mean, on uh, on the big scale, it seems like right now what's happening is one or two orders of magnitude higher than what we've experienced in the previous uh, decade or so, and and the the implications that that has to the uh, availability of raw materials and, and the impacts on commodity markets is is quite large. Yeah, dispersion is, I think, an important thing to look at right? when you have. A decade where think about the uh, the dual mandate of the Fed, right? It's to fight inflation and to and to fight recessions, right? To make sure that they keep a balance between those two. And for the last ten years, if not forty years, with the exception of a period in the mid nots, 
the Fed didn't have to worry about inflation at all. They, it's a lot easier to fight one battle exclusively with all your might than to have to balance the battle between one and the other. And for the vast majority of the last 40 years, with the great moderation, you know, an abundant labor supply, uh, more collaboration in terms of global trading, just-in-time inventorying, everything became cheaper and cheaper and cheaper. Inflation, in spite of the amount of liquidity injected in markets at different times by the Fed, didn't really you know, create much of a problem for the Fed. They could, they could use all those uh, monetary tools in order to fight down periods of equity markets, which if they didn't, it would lead to a real recession. Um, and so that's an easier battle, right? And when, when you're fighting this dual mandate, this, oh, it's, uh, we have a liquidity shock, let's add liquidity. Uh, oh, we did too much. Let's maybe raise rates a little bit just to cool things off. It's a lot easier than when you have to then balance off oh, we can't use the tools that worked in the last 40 years all of a sudden. There is a demographic change in China. There are wars. The people, there are supply chain disruptions. We did use fiscal spending that led to 20% increase in demand when the, when the world economy could only provide 4%, right? All of a sudden, those tools that, that helped them to minimize maximum drawdowns in equity markets are limited by how much inflation they will cause. And now we have a three-dimensional problem. And that three-dimensional problem leads to not like U.S. dollar and everything else and, uh, and fangs and everything else, but rather differing policies in terms of how different governments are going to fight inflation. That leads to dispersion yeah. across currency crosses, across different boons, right? Japan is having a much different issue with the Fed than the United States. And, and Europe is having a different issue in terms of inflation and recession versus the United States and Canada. Okay, right? well, hold so on a second here. This isn't, this isn't the global macro call. No, but, my, but to, take, to bring it back, to bring it back, <laughs> could, could you bring it stuff, back? Could you bring, I appreciate it. All of this stuff, it means that we have many asset classes that are not just doing one thing or the other. They're, they're taking their own path for much longer in a way that, especially CTA trend managers, are now able to capture, right? What a trend manager requires a, not just a trend, but a trend and a persistent trend. It requires many trends and many persistent trends. And we have more, we're seeing more dispersion in many different trends today than we saw in the previous decade. Yeah, did that, I, did I, that bring it? Did you, did you fall asleep there, Mikey? No, I, 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 I just- <laughs> I, I remember I, Mike's I was, on delay. I was, I, yeah, I was, I was in a- uh, <laughs> Let's move on. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so one of the things that, um, oh, no, you, you got it, Mike. Sorry. I'm, I'm oh, no, I was just going to uh, bring it. So, so, yeah, it didn't work very well. But it's working again in case you thought it was broken, but rather it was really having a period of low returns. So that's fine. And there's reasons why, as you guys have, uh, have alluded to. And I think, so, so now let's get that next step going. So, okay, great. We've got this potential area and asset class that we can take advantage of because of the heter heterogeneous nature of that, the dispersion that's occurring and the markets breaking away from central bank control. Okay, great. So now there's so many choices. And what do we do? What, what are the choices? And I know we've highlighted a few. Okay, so then how might we assemble those choices? And into a coherent portfolio. 
And I think that those are some of the things I think maybe might be more uh, or a direction I would like to see us go to, to help people sort of, you know, is it a pure factor that you're after where you're doing the assembly and you're doing the rebalancing? Or are you looking to cloak some exposures in order to increase the ability for the investor to stick with it? And so you're actually wrapping some of these things together. And how do you approach those things? And to me, there's so much here, the type of strategy. And I love Jason Josephiak's framework for, you know, first responders and second responders and diversifiers. It's kind of an interesting framework to think about this through. And, and then, you know, what underlies that? Do you want them separate? Do you want them combined? And how do we help people think about that? Mike That's Harris a really- is here too with, um, with some really good comments, right? Um, and one of the things that he mentioned was that um, some CTAs move to a larger equity exposure. And this actually dovetails nicely with um, one, of the, one of the motivations for why we thought it would be a good time to, to maybe revisit this and that is that Cliff Assis just wrote this really great piece about the raison d'etre of managed futures. And um, I think this gets at sort of the narrow framing that you are describing, right? But one of the things that he asserted in, in, his, um, in his piece was that traditionally institutions have used managed futures as, like you said, what Jason Giuseppiak would call kind of first or second responders on the risk mitigation side of portfolios, right? They had a history of um, delivering some of their best returns in the months and quarters where especially equity markets really suffered, right? And he makes the case, which I think I'm going to assert is very narrow framing um, which, which I think speaks to maybe the character that they're seeking with their managed futures product, but that any attempt to diversify out of that sort of pure outlier hunting or pure trend strategy dilutes the value of that trend strategy. And he, he ran through a few analyses that I think it, it merits revisiting and, and, and offering some perspective on, right? So, you know, one of the thing he, things he maintains was that um, their sort of what, what he calls pure trend strategy um, had the same alpha or actually higher alpha relative to equities um, than the Sockchain CTA, the Sockchain CTA index or Sockchain, I think it was a CTA index, not the trend index. Um, over the full period. And I think it's worth noting that, that of course, they, use, they have two different funds, right? One of the funds is a lower volatility fund and the other, the other fund is a higher volatility fund. The lower vol fund has a lot more assets than the higher vol fund. And, and Cliff and I have discussed this um, on previous occasions, right? People in general just don't tolerate high volatility as a line item in their portfolio, even big institutions often can't tolerate that high volatility because high volatility inevitably leads to high drawdowns. And so even if you've got, if you've got two funds that have, um, that are equally uncorrelated or correlated with a benchmark index, but one of, and, and, and at the similar sharp ratios, but one of them has a much higher volatility than the other, then the one with higher volatility is going to have higher alpha. 
because alpha is a function of the volatility as well as the um, as well as the returns. So, or as well as the sharp ratio, right? So you can't just take volatility. Um, and it was interesting that he did use the high ball product, right? And you know, I will say that it is from an efficiency standpoint more effective to use a higher volatility allocation, right? If you've got 10% of your portfolio to allocate to um, a managed futures type program and the rest of your portfolio is dominated by equity beta, which has, let's call it of all of 16 to 20, then yeah, absolutely. You wanna get as much juice in your managed futures allocation as you can so that it, it can deliver the diversification potential that, that you want it to at the right times, right? However, if you look at the long-term, just kind of sharp ratio of these strategies, I think if you just looked at the equity line of a high ball, um, traditional pure trend strategy, notwithstanding cliff strategy, but any sort of pure trend strategy over the last 20, 30 years, they do go through long stretches of extreme drawdowns that are sustained for many years. And yes, they're punctuated by you know, months and quarters of extreme positive returns. And historically, those, those extreme positive returns have happened when equity markets are in a more sustained type of bear market environment, which is nicely helpful. The problem is that, first of all, you can get strategies that deliver the same type of complementarity to say traditional endowment portfolios or, or balanced portfolios during downtimes while also delivering positive return contributions to portfolios during other times, right? And I think Cliff is sort of narrow framing this as saying, well, managed futures are only good for crisis alpha. And so I think what I want to spend some time on, at least in the beginning here is, well, is that the only way we should be looking at managed futures? Are there different types of investors, especially, that may view the utility of managed futures in different ways? And maybe I would throw out that institutions with many billions of dollars and large research teams and ability to, to, to specialize and maybe have um, futures managers run strategies and manage accounts for them, which they can combine and commingle, et cetera, may have very different objectives and priorities and, and preferences for strategies than, for example, family offices or um, high net worth clients of, of traditional investors, right? So let me just throw that out there. Maybe you guys can respond. You've touched on, on several different themes there uh, that we could pull on threads, Adam, but I, I want to kind of just, for the record, uh, the comparison on the pay on the ASNIS uh, note there was with the trend index, not the CTA index, the SOC Gen trend index. But uh, I think it's useful for us to maybe talk about the explicit choice that we made uh, in, in sort of stepping away from this very lumpy, very uh, occasional type of return profile that a trend following strategy, a pure trend following strategy would have and have incorporated these other edges that are orthogonal or non-correlated to trend in the way that we manage money. And, and there's so many dimensions to this, right? There's the behavioral components, is, like the ability to stick with it, right? A, a decade long dormant period or, or almost dormant period 
can be really hard to stick to to the point where people will call the strategy dead. Uh, there's, there's. Well, look, I just want to call attention again to Mike Harris here, who he said the problem with managed futures is the historical performance of master accounts versus investor accounts. Historical performance may be misleading, right? Referring to, and, and I don't want to put words in your mouth, Mike, but I think referring to the fact that the difference between time-weighted returns and money, which is what returns. the yeah, what the fund reports, and money-weighted returns, which is what yeah. the end investor gets, and the idea that because trends and especially high volatility high volatility trend funds have these very deep sustained drawdowns, what tends to have, you know punctuated by these these huge spikes in performance, which gets them a lot of attention. What ends up happening is investors crowd into these funds at the wrong right possible after yeah. equity drawdowns as those funds have had their, their peak performance and then ride it down for five to 10 years with, with few punctuated points of relief along the way. And so they, and, and then abandon the strategy in drawdown and never get to accrue the benefits, right? And this is not so just a problem for managed futures. returns are low or negative. Because we, we've heard the story about the Magellan Fund and Peter Lynch talking about the Magellan Fund's track record versus investors who were invested because of this very problem. So let's just put it out there. This is not just for trend following. There's like all strategies go through drawdowns. Definitely, and, yes. And, and it can be hard to stick to with the worst possible times. And investors oftentimes don't have the discipline to do the, the long-term sound approach, which is to take a counter-cyclical asset allocation and add to those strategies when they're in their drawdowns and sell off a little bit of their allocation when they go through these outsized uh, performances. Ron, you I know that you were talking All investors are not perfectly efficient in their decision-making? Well, well the, what's sure. sad, Mike, is that it's not even, <laughs> we're not even talking about retail, right? Like we're talking about- No, we're talking about all investors. We're talking about every investor. Look, at the end of the day, we're all human. Mike, you have been, uh, you've been nailing this from the day I met you which is there's one thing to be optimal mathematically is another thing to be optimal for the human being. And the reality about trend, right, is that it is a difficult thing to stick to for a very long period of time when it's not like they, you know, like Adam said, many periods of drawdown. We're, we're, you see many drawdowns punctuated by these performances that lead to kind of a low single digit return in the last seven years. Many, many, many years within the last seven years have been punctuated with low single digit returns, but a lot of volatility, a lot of painful, not non-correlated <laughs> negative drawdowns in between. And if the, the ultimate goal is not to provide necessary, maybe it is for certain people. I mean, mathematically it certainly is, but emotionally we need to find something that people can stick to. Right. So uh, there's been a few questions here about different fund structures, but um, there's a few fund structures out there that are doing really, really well because they mixed the equity with managed trend futures. Right. In order to provide a level of behavioral uh, discipline, because you can't see that you are that within the managed futures, there's this beta that you already own. Right. And so this return stacking concept that we've talked about throughout the year is actually quite useful and, and crucial in order to minimize the pain of doing something that's right. Well, now, I think you we should elaborate extend. just not on the minimization of the pain, but the fact that you can do it and why you can do it. Again, this is why it is, there's a structural thing here that I would I would love to sort of 
share with everybody because this is one of the main advantages to a managed future strategy that I don't think we've uh, hit directly. So make sure you yeah get on. Add no, that go, in go, there. Mike, go. Oh no, but it's, it just goes into the return stacking. So I, you're the you, you've got that. Yeah, yeah down. sure. So I just I want mean, to make is... sure you get that in your. But but I mean, this the return stacking I'm talking about right now is there's a couple of funds that we really like, a couple of uh, you know our brethren that have. You know, 50% exposure to equities, whether it's global or domestic, different funds have different, and then 100% exposure to trend, right? Now, why is that useful to the average investor? It's because they don't see it, right? It's like we're masking it. We are, Cloaking. we are, it's a little bit of fugazi so that they don't know that they're getting some good stuff in there. And that mutual fund structure, they just see something that has a smoother equity line. When they x-ray it, they're getting a full unit of what they would get from any managed futures fund, right? Mm -hmm. you, you can just grab a managed futures fund, but you're getting an extra from your $100 that you invest, an extra 50 cents of, of S&P or, or global equities that helps smooth out the line. The client doesn't see 150. <clears throat> the client sees a nice smooth equity line. And so we, we with return stacking, with funds that provide stacking, uh, the fund that we sub-advise for Rational is a... You know, it's, it's the equivalent of kind of running, buying a, a risk parity fund and then stacking on top a systematic global macro fund, right? And that is wrapped around something that, that makes it seem like you're only investing in one strategy, but you're investing in two. So you just used a four letter word there, Rodrigo. You better explain what you mean by risk parity. Hopefully, no, people we'll that tune into our that. channel Just, know. Jesus, that, do we have another two hours? But at least no, we, we, have, we have enough episodes mean, on this. Maybe theme. we should tell what we do not yeah. mean. We do not so, mean. So, so by the way, I just want to highlight that what Rodrigo is pointing to is return stacking at Resolve Asset Management. You can go read the paper. You can also see the index. So we're not saying that we're not. We don't name our brethren. We have it all there in the portfolio. There's an yeah. index established. Return so. stacking dot live. If you want to see an index that Corey Hofstein. Um, Adam and I created that includes everybody that that we know that uses the right stacks to make a, a portfolio of 60% equity, 40% bonds, 30% trend, and 30% CTA. Uh, sorry, 30% systematic global macro. So, but but again, the point I really want to make here is um, grabbing that pick and shovel to put in your portfolio as a trend futures, you can see it in the numbers, right? You can see in the AUM that CTA trend managers, pure CTA trend managers have had. Go to Morningstar, look at that category, see what the AUM is, and then contrast it with something like Milburn uh, that has billions of dollars because they matched equities and, and, and uh, managed futures together years ago, right? A forward-thinking firm, right? They, they're in the billions. So there's something magical about providing value while um, the word masking seems bad, but you know, cloaking by obscure cloaking. cloaking, that's the right word, right? So, and again, what are you cloaking? What is it that you actually, what's the magic there? The magic is that one element zigs when the other element zags, but they both are expected to make positive returns. They both expect to be positive, but they zig when the other one zag. When you separate those line items, it's too painful if you care more about one line item than the other, which is, and you care more about equities than you care about CTA. What, and this is, so whenever we're ready to transition to how else can we continue to smooth out that line and why that's important, we can get into that. But just broadly speaking, I think trend alone shouldn't be shocking 
because if you go back to 600 years of data that we've seen before, um, even the, the 100 years that AQR put out, there are, you can just go back and see how many five-year periods did we have flat returns in that trend? Lots. Or enough where you should have known, right? It shouldn't be, it shouldn't be like, oh, CTA blown up. It's just what it is. It's, every strategy goes through flat periods, right? Yeah, so th- I think yeah. what you're highlighting too, Rod- uh, Rodrigo, is the objective function. What's the objective function of the investor? And, you know, as you said, you, you need a smoother line. I need, I need to stick with this. I need the behavioral fortitude to, to hang in there. And so, Adam, you mentioned earlier about very specific, hyper-specific mandates at institutions and commingled accounts where they're cross, crossing the volatility or crossing the capital across many, many strategies. and stuff, yeah. Yeah. And so, again, it's the, the, the dimensions of different types of strategies or factors that you could create features from is quite large and the dimensions of the space itself are quite large. So it leaves a lot of, of um, sort of very creative space to think about how to create strategies. There's an interesting question from SA, like the philosophy, but I don't like mutual funds uh, versus a separately managed account. Do I have a misunderstanding? Um, I, I think that in, in that case, when you're looking at funds that are in the most liquid and highly liquid uh, instruments in the world, if you're in a separately managed account or a mutual fund, you're not subject to too much drag from the flows in and out. It's possible. And in a separately managed account, you have your specific rate of return um, for when you put money in. You could look to, um, in a large scenario, as highlighted earlier, have this cross margin across many different accounts that you're sort of compiling together. Um, so, you know, if you're large enough and you have that kind of requirement, you're not going to enter a mutual fund structure. You're going to do a separately managed account. That's a $25 million ticket for us. And you've got to remember the granularity that you have to get to in these large contracts. And if you're investing in 80 or a hundred, uh, these different strategies. So now there's a lot to think about of moving from a separately managed account from, uh, whether it's a mutual fund structure or, uh, uh, an accredited investor structure, a hedge fund or an LP, by pooling the money, you can get farther diversification across much more markets at a much more granular level. That's why the SMA account for us is a $25 million ticket because you have, you need that much money. Yeah. A oh. single, a single bond contract is a hundred thousand dollars, right? Uh, or more like it's just around that area. And so the, depending and different contracts have different minimums. So if you need to have a very small position in bonds and you have a million dollar portfolio, you won't be able to. There'll be um, tracking error to the model, right? So yeah. it's, it's the, I think mutual funds provide, it's a, it's a great technology, whether it's mutual funds or exchange traded funds, the technology of being able to buy $500 worth of a, of a diversified um, managed futures or systematic global macro strategy, it's amazing, right? Something that, Again, I, I was interviewed recently um, and was asked, you know, what's, what's the really real advantage or real, what's changed in your career? And it's the innovation of mutual funds and ETFs and the liquid alternatives rules that, you know, 15, 20 years ago, we, didn't, we, were, we weren't able to get as retail investors access to even like global equity exposures, right? Little global bond exposures, uh, currencies. All that stuff is now very much in, uh, in our fingertips. And, uh, and so, yeah, you should take advantage of the mutual fund structure for sure. So to bring us back to the, uh, 
to the core theme here and and the the evolution in the thinking. So we, we we've talked about how it's challenging to stick with a strategy that can have such a lumpy return profile. And then the explicit choice that we made in introducing new edges. Maybe let's talk a little bit a little bit about how we can add additional systematic edges to trend following in the future space. And what are some of the trade offs? I mean, there's obvious benefits. Uh, but there are indeed some trade-offs, particularly uh, that uh, are mentioned in, in Cliff's paper on giving up a little bit of the crisis alpha or the asymmetry of returns during uh, a crisis periods. But how to weight those things and, and, and how do we think about that problem? Well, one of the there things he is. to... Hey, Jason. Hey. You know, we, um, we, we had a managed futures party and didn't invite the... the um, the the guy with the most experience the OG. in his futures, so the OG in his futures. <laughs> so we uh, we just went back to our usual routine, and and then um, Rodrigo woke up. Anyway, Jason, um, we're just talking about. So so just by way of introduction, uh, Jason has has been in managed futures for what now? Jason, eighteen years, seventeen years. Yeah, yeah, about that. Yep, eighteen years in managed futures. Derivatives ran one for of the career, first, 30 years. Yeah, right. Yeah. Ran yep. one of the first uh, managed futures trend following funds in Canada. And um, and Jason joined the Resolve team um, a few years ago with with um, his partner, Nick, and have been instrumental in, in um, our journey. So thank you for, for coming, um, even though it was last minute. That I know we're going to get into something, Adam, just one second, because I think this yeah, is going to be with his intro. Jason... Because we got to have some some stories, right? Uh, Jason, you were uh, who was your guru, your guru, your mentor, a little bit of both uh, in the trend following space? Because you have you have an interesting background there. Yeah, I worked with a, a number of folks, but Ed Sekota, uh, uh is is one. Uh, he was profiled market wizards, uh, great guy, and uh, he's an independent trader and has done extremely well. Uh, and, uh, um, so worked with him, gosh, probably 15 years ago. Uh, he works as much on the, more on the psychology of trading than the, the, the trading itself. So any, anyone in this business knows, uh, you can create all the systems you want, but, uh, you know, uh, sticking to them and trying to, um, uh, just live with them can be challenging, right? Uh, even in the research, the research process, it's a huge, huge part of what we do. Even just uh, forget running it, but uh, developing it uh, is is also uh, fraught with psychological challenges. So uh, did a lot of work on that, and we we all live with that every day, as we have to face uh, these kinds of uh, decisions. Just because something's quant, you think it's the, the the dream is there's a button to press at the end of the day, and you're done. Uh, and it's that easy, but we all know there's so much more involved in uh, running and maintaining um, these these systems we build. Yeah, yeah I think yep. that's super critical. And I actually think we should pause here and talk about the psychological um, challenges of of sticking to any sort of alternative strategy. It's not just trend following, though I think trend in some ways can be a little bit more difficult than, than some other alternative strategies from a psychological perspective. But, you, you know, it's just, it's so easy to um, be 
in a difficult situation where everyone else is in the same difficult situation. And you're, you know, you've got this feeling where you're all in it together. Think about people in a traditional kind of 60, 40 portfolio um, or in an equity portfolio, equities go down for a while. Maybe, you know, equities have, have gone sideways or, or down for decades at a time. It's obviously painful. People do drift away from equities and start thinking about ways to diversify during those periods. But it's not nearly as difficult, and those feelings of needing to change are not don't don't occur nearly so quickly in traditional assets because everyone kind of they think they understand it. There seems to be some kind of rhyme or reason for the movements that they're seeing. You know, equities, I guess, are going are going down because the economy's weak. That makes sense. Bonds are going up because the economy's weak, or what have you. Um, whereas a lot of alternatives there's often, it's hard to know why yeah. the fund is in a drawdown, right? And that, and even the manager is sort of looking at it going, I've got my statistical models or I've got my general framework of, of buying outliers. Um, but, you know, maybe this is, maybe this has gone away for a while. And, you know, so it's, the manager itself yeah. also has to go through these types of emotional well, journeys. Yeah, like misery loves company. Um, and there's no bigger company than doing what everyone else is doing. So as an alternative investment, you try to do something different. And one of the costs is you don't have a lot of company. Um, so so in, 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 when you have to look into those moments of why, why is this hurting so much, there's no, you look around and you're kind of by yourself. And even those that are other alternative managers aren't really doing exactly what you're doing. So um, how, do you, how do you manage that? How do you have the, the confidence and at what point are you overconfident? So uh, there's there's all, all those type of things that you know I know um, uh, are 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 interesting to challenge to, to to work through. And that that's what I'm talking about on the trading side. On the research side, there's all other other kinds of things like uh, you press a button and bam, you got a 25 year back test, and you live 25 years in a moment. And it's really easy to look at the sharp ratio and or the equity curve and and all of those things. Um, it's very different to live that back test one day at a time. Uh, and when there's, you know, 412 days uh, that you've been living and it's really been hurting, uh, it, you know, how do you, how do you, uh, you know, how, how do you judge your, your testing? How do you judge uh, living through it? And uh, so well, it's, it's fascinating. I think experience is important here, right, Jason? And I think you, when you were trading through a way, so you have this system. The system tells you um, that you backtest it. It tells you exactly when to buy, when to sell. You account for some slippage and some trading costs. But in a way, the rules were changed for market participants halfway through with the, you're not allowed to short anymore. Right? right. So what did, what did, can you tell us a little bit about back then, like what things that you have to do as a, as a managed futures manager to, to, to deal with that reality? Yeah, there's, there's a, uh... There's actually periods just after 08 where they restricted shorting in uh, in Italy, for example, uh, or there's the Swiss uh, franc uh, peg, um, a variety of things like that. So I think you know this is where the rubber hits the road. As a quant manager, you got to stop and realize I am not a robot, um, and and you do have to apply some elements of common sense. So you know with the uh, there's times where you're just going to take take a market out of the portfolio, or you find uh, ways to adapt. So, um, you know, if you a, a short position on, uh, if shorts are banned from a certain day forward and you already have a short on, 
Um, there's nothing stopping you from hedging and removing your hedge, hedging and removing your hedge on the long side. Uh, so, 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 so that that doesn't fit well into the into the code, but you can make you can make things like that uh, happen, um, and, um, and and still kind of stick with with the system. Because uh, if someone doesn't want you to short, and you're a massively profitable short, you might want to stick with a short as long as you can. Uh, and uh, but th those are the type of things that we all all know and have, have lived through, will continue to live through, and I suspect there's more of that uh, stuff coming. Um, uh, that uh, I think it's just a, a common a layer of common sense. Yeah. yeah. And you raise a really good point there, Jason, and, and we have a, a recent example of a market that we perceive to have a, an asymmetric risk that got benched and, and hasn't returned to the fold yet. So, I mean, it's uh, I think this is your analogy, Mike, right? You have a, uh, a pilot flying airplane and he looks at his instruments and it says, oh, you're doing fine. Just keep going. Cruise control. And you look out the window and you see a mountain and it's like, do you pull up or do you follow your instruments, right? You obviously gonna pull up. So it's instruments are good, but uh, pragmatic realism uh, should, should, should not be forgotten. Yeah, it should be the, the, the exception obviously and not the rule, right? But you definitely have to apply common sense. And, and um, you know, you're operating in markets, markets change and um, people are also trying to manage markets. They're intervening with different types of regulations and and currency pegs and rate pegs, et cetera. And it's um, you know, well, it's definitely. Uh, I think it's also that the. Um, uh, I forgot what I was going to say. Go ahead, Jason. <laughs> <laughs> I was just going to say, like uh, other things too. The 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 way in which the markets have uh, evolved. I'm showing my age, but when I started in the futures markets. People would ring a bell, trading would begin. At the end of the day, they ring a bell and everyone goes for a drink. And the, and, and uh, now with uh, electronic markets and shifting start times, end times, introduction of algo execution, um, and uh, a number of things, these things have changed the nature and, and character of the, of the data. Um, uh, and it used to be it could buy data for 800 bucks a year and it was perfect. Uh, now, as we all know, it's, ridiculously, uh, I wish it was 10x uh, more expensive than that. That's uh, 100x, really. Um, and uh, we have a lot of work to do uh, at that level. Um, yeah, complexity and the cost of the tech stack and, and the data stack is an order of magnitude or two um, yes. different than it was kind yep. of even 10 years ago, for sure. Yep. Um, yep. But I mean, one of the things that we... So, so a lot of trend followers, I think... Um, especially old school trend followers uh, sort of embrace this idea that you need to, uh, to suffer through these long droughts, right? And because, you know, you're hunting outliers and there's going to be periods when no outliers arise, right? Like mm -hmm. sometimes five, seven years and you're trading unproductively and it's just like a, it's kind of a death by a thousand cuts. Um, and I think that maybe modern managed futures managers who didn't kind of grow up necessarily um, uh, mentoring or interning at the original OG managed futures firms, and maybe with a more of a background in data science and, um, and math, have taken the managed future space in, in a bit of a different direction, right? And I think it's, it's really interesting to contrast the two. And I know that some of the OG um, you know, managers that have been around for 30, 40 years, 
they kind of chuckle and say, yeah, I hear about this AI and this ML, and I don't know what those young whippersnappers are talking about. And, you know, it's, which is, which is fair, right? I mean, you've got a 30, 40 year track record, you know what you like, and you know what you do, and you're comfortable with the long droughts and, and um, with your process because you understand it. Um, but I think we need to acknowledge that um, there is opportunity for innovation in the space. And we certainly have taken the view that um, there's opportunity for tremendous improvement in the efficiency, the long-term efficiency of the portfolio by approaching the problem from a few slightly different angles, right? Obviously, Cliff's piece highlights that um, some managers have introduced carry to traditional trend strategies in order to type, to, to ameliorate some of these long droughts. And he uses the original Coig and carry paper factor to tease out what the um, level of carry exposure is in the CTA index. And I mean, the, the fact is the CTA, the CTA index doesn't really seem to show much in the way of carry exposure. There is definitely more of a um, equity beta that has cre crept into portfolios over the last um, the last decade or so. Out of I think maybe a survival mechanism for some of these for some of these funds. Um, I think you can argue that that maybe some funds adapted to longer term trends and gave the trends what Jerry might call looser pants um, to not get whipsawed so critically during some of the V bottoms that we experienced over the last 10 years, right? So definitely I, I would be on the side of an argument that, that suggests that trend followers have made compromises to adjust to the, to the environment. And I would also maybe be sympathetic to the view that some of those compromises were, on, were um, unproductive or unhelpful in terms of the role that those managers may play in, in some portfolios. Um, and I don't, but I guess my point is that's not the only way that you can innovate. And I think what we found is that you can preserve most of, and maybe even generate more of some of the um, risk offset type of character from managed future strategies while also introducing other edges into the strategies that um, generate edges for or returns for very different reasons than trend, right? I, that are not pure outlier hunting. Adam, let me just pause there for a second because I, I, I want to ask you, the, I, I see like a clear bifurcation in, in philosophy here when, when we talk about pure trend and, and, and sort of this, this, I guess, original explanation that people, investors in general tend to underreact to new information and that is the reason why uh, the, that is perhaps the most commonly accepted reason for, for, for trend following uh, uh, to exist and for there to be a, a risk premium there. Uh, and then this other approach that incorporates these other edges. So, so the first one, trend following, would be sort of closer to the efficient market hypothesis, more embracing of that. And, and the bifurcation that I see is that the approach that we've taken and others in the industry have of incorporating these other edges is sort of embracing the reflexive uh, uh, hypothesis of markets, right? Markets are always changing. Different participants are always changing. The marginal buyers and sellers are always changing. And then more explicitly, uh, the type of regimes that we have operated under, especially since 09, 
meaningfully shifted and there was this 800 pound gorilla sucking all the oxygen out of the room uh and and, and meaningfully changing the 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 dynamics of market so so would you agree with that perhaps there's this very uh stark difference in in investment philosophy uh between the two well, with some clarification right i think some of the mistakes that that the um OG trend managers react to are stuff like I lengthened my trend um, uh, length because the, the the trend length has changed going forward, right? Only longer trends are going to work going forward. Or, you know, I read a, a paper by a big London-based trend manager recently that talked about how their new innovations were that they were going to cap equity and bond exposure and they were introducing a seven-day trend signal. And, you know, I, I, I personally believe that that kind of approach is, is highly misguided, right? I think the idea is that you want to trade as many markets as you can that are liquid enough to trade and, and other markets that are maybe not liquid enough to trade at full capacity, but that you trade at a right size capacity given their level of, of liquidity. And, you have a experimental framework that allows you to introduce new factors or features or signals or edges that may explain the movement of markets based on relationships that you can examine over the full history of all of these markets, um, but that show their virtue or their value under very different market conditions, right? I mean, we know the trend shows its value under a certain type of market condition. When regulators, governments, and central banks and authorities are not able to impose their will on the markets because the disruptions are coming from places outside their purview, like in the real asset space, in the commodity space, for example, right? Um, and in other periods where central bankers and governments just um, had, they didn't really have their foot on the markets, the way the neck of the markets, the way that they had over the last decade, right? Um, but there are other strategies that are not really sensitive to that regime of whether there's lots of outliers or it's a more stable regime or whether it's inflationary or deflationary, et cetera. And if you can add those strategies to a, um, a meta strategy that also includes trend type exposures, now you're really cooking. Yeah. And this is like, we don't have, just to not beat around the bush, you have the Goldman Sachs macro index has trend, carry, and um, relative, relative value, value. Right. Yeah. There are, there is a manager in Canada that uh, has been doing, has a, it's a longest running active equity manager in North America. And it has done seasonal rotation um, using futures and ETFs across commodities, equities, and bonds. Right? But there's, and these are the these are the features that we use in our in our kind of um, uh, machine learning process in order to to identify and really be able to maximize the just the the lack of correlation between the strategies and the fact that they all are expected to make positive returns, amongst other things. Right? But the point is. We talk about managed futures as this blanket statement for trend. But what we're trying to emphasize here is that you can use those tools 
in order to do whatever you want with them. And if you find an edge in other styles, and like everybody here should know what factor investing is, right? You can use equities and invest as a value manager. You can use equities to invest as a momentum manager or a growth manager or a low vol manager. They're still using the same pool of equities and getting different results, all making money, but have drawdowns in bull markets at different times. The same thing applies to futures. So I take offense. I take offense to be, like manage futures being only owned by, by trend managers. Let's call them CTA trend. Let's call managed futures the equivalent of saying the S&P 500. And let's really try to talk about differentiated types of, uh, of mandates that you could explore from that. You could create, in fact, we do create a risk parity portfolio using just futures. That is, you know, that's, is that a managed future strategy? It is. We are managing futures to create a risk parity component. So the, I guess the point here is ultimately you want the straightest equity line that you can that's lowly correlated to whatever you, you have, right? And the way to do that isn't necessarily just suffering through many periods of poor performance by just doing seasonality or just doing value or just doing trend. Because it all starts yeah, at different times. Riffing off, riffs if, off. If that's paper if that's again. the objective function, sure. Right. The key sure, is that's that a good what, point. what yeah. what is the objective function of the investor? Are they are they trying to get a really fast reacting, long short trend, and willing to suffer the thousand razor blades that they will receive through that, because they have a beta portfolio that somehow they feel that that hedges it. Right. So it's really is the about short term trend managers became much more popular. In the last five years. After March 2020. Exactly. It's amazing how the best performing managers always become popular. Right. And, <laughs> you know, it, to, to, to that point, though, like a couple of a couple of notes on that. Right. So Cliff's paper talks about how um, his strategy is a higher alpha or that, you know, the pure trend strategy is a higher alpha to the S&P than the SOC Gen trend index. But when you look at the performance of the SOC Gen trend index, and the pure trend index alongside the S&P 500 or a more typical portfolio, like say a US 6040 portfolio, what you find is that the SOCGEN portfolio provides exactly the same boost to performance as the pure trend portfolio. And the reason is that even though the SOCGEN portfolio, the SOCGEN um, CTA index has a slightly higher correlation to bonds and stocks than the pure trend index, it also has a higher Sharpe ratio, right? So there's a, there's a few ways to skin the cat. Sure, it's nice to have a highly negatively correlated strategy, um, even if it's got a very low Sharpe ratio. But also if it has a really low Sharpe ratio, it's gonna be really hard to stick with. And it's gonna drive underperformance for several years before it gives you that boost. You can have your cake and, and eat it too in some respects by buying a uh, or also owning a, a complementary strategy or stacking complementary strategies on top of um, these core portfolios. But where these complementary strategies have low correlation or are uncorrelated with the traditional core exposures, but that also have a much higher sharp ratio. So the line item risk or the line item discomfort of owning this um, uh, exposure is much lower. And you might even over the long term generate a higher, more efficient 
return on the portfolio from having, you know, the, your cake and eating it too in that way. So tying this back to the discussion we were having earlier about behavioral challenge and, and sort of optimal allocation from a mathematical standpoint and optimal allocation from sort of the strategy that you can stick to, right? The best strategy, the best portfolio allocation is the one that you can actually stick to. So, so what's, what's explicit here is that you give up on returns. The more you diversify, the more layers of diversification that you include in your portfolio, the more you're giving up on positive returns for whatever the strategy that is shining the most any given point is or market that is performing the best, while at the same time reducing concentration risk so also avoiding those much larger drawdowns. So, so you're, you're, you're cutting the tails, but the, the, at least from what we've discussed uh, with investors uh, time and time again, is this idea that people who still want to chase performance well, to some degree the and they want the, the, the lottery ticket size returns and they want that asymmetry. Well, and so well, there Richard, is you, some yeah. hurdle there. Not only that, not only behaviorally, the behavioral waves are so big. Sometimes the financial, financialization of a commodity occurs to the extent that the financial side of it wags the commercial side of it. You know, as, as Adam's alluded to, these are real, real things. But when you get uh, so much oil represented by USO in a disclosed way, it can cause real feedback loops to the real economy. So these participants are changing um, on both sides. Behaviorally, there's not only the investors impact in the crowding, but also some underlying mechanical impacts that are quite interesting that present interesting trade opportunities, especially if you're looking at it through the lens of uh, multi-layered view. Sort of the idea, one of them comes to my mind is, you know, the momentum idea and the more momentum, the better. But when that thing starts to bend back, almost looking like it's been back, that's give you the strongest long momentum signal, but it's not a good signal. Yeah, and, and necessarily. I think, yeah. I think just going back to your point, Richard, about the you know the diversifiers and things moving in different directions, and you get this lower volatility, a straighter line. But you know what investors really care about is money in your pocket. And so, if you have you know one thing doing really well and two things flatlining for half a decade, you have a you have a smoother volatility line, but you might not get the returns. That you need. And this is where people suffer. And Jason, I'd actually be curious to hear from you when you started the business. Was managed futures seen as a nice allocation to take away from traditional portfolios and add to? Or was there more kind of an institutional tilt where, due to the characteristics of futures themselves, where you don't need to have the 100% funded strategy where you can overlay or do return stacking or capital efficiency? How much in, in the beginning of your career were futures used to lever on top, to add the strategy on top of a base portfolio. Was there a lot of talk and no action? I, I, I can't really tell. It was, it was very much, case. yeah, I think it was very much more uh, institutional um, uh, clients as opposed to retail, particularly in Canada. There were a few uh, innovators in the Canadian market that tried to create a uh, retail product, but uh, they layered so many fees on top. Um, they had a great story. It's basically um, portable alpha uh, overlay uh, is what they called it back then, um, and uh, it uh, it was it was 
not very popular from a, a retail standpoint because the product was uh, very thinly available and what was available was very expensive. Um, and that was one of the reasons why, uh, you know, I think we all got in the business because we saw the potential opportunity um, and, uh, and to, to really offer something um, of, of quality. One thing I, I want to emphasize really important here that, that uh, you know, the, the opportunity for innovation um, has been large in this space. Uh, uh, and, and, you know, that's something that we've really, really have taken advantage of. And in, in the past, uh, innovation could be confused for a fix. Like psychologically, as you're developing these portfolios and you're, you're in a drawdown, when you're a trend, the old school trend followers would just try to find a trend following based fix for that. So some extra filter, some constraint, some doodad, some even volatility targeting, which does work, is a, a compromise to the original sort of true, true blue trend following uh, approach. And um, I think it's really important to emphasize for everyone here, like we spend an immense amount of time looking at any innovation with, uh, I call it the hairy eyeball. Uh, we're open, you need to be an open-minded skeptic, right? So whether it's a new uh, factor, a new strategy, new um, new way to look at the problem, uh, I think it's uh, uh, experience for all of us has really helped uh, uh, inform the way in which we go about making these decisions because it's really easy to find something that works almost always you quantitatively we can solve problems really fast on paper on paper yeah yeah i think it's important too i think richard you raised a, an, another point that we probably need to to focus on for a minute and that is that diversification i remember it's, i think it was brian port and i my friend who said that diversification means always having to say you're sorry and so this is a really good case example, right? Because obviously Pure Trend is having the best period it's had in, in you know, at least 12 years. Decade. And, um, and so any attempt to diversify away from pure basic trend following has detracted from performance this year in most cases, right? And it's the same type of thing as equities or, or traditional portfolios, right? Over the last decade, notwithstanding this year, over the last decade, any attempt to responsibly diversify away from cap-weighted U.S. equities, whether it was into international equities or international bonds uh, or international um, or emerging stocks um, or certainly alternatives, was detracted from the total return of the portfolio over that period, right? But it presumes that you're going to know what strategy is going to perform best over the next period, right? The whole point of diversification is to acknowledge that you don't know which strategy is going to perform best. If you did, obviously, you just go rotate constantly into the strategies that you knew were going to perform best in the next period, right? So if you've got a multi-strat manager where one of the strategies is trend, well, that manager is probably going to underperform by a little bit at least a pure trend manager when pure trend is the best factor by far, right? Or the best, the best source of edge by far. So, you know, this is a, this is a common challenge that um, anybody who runs diversified portfolios faces, 
it's, you know, again, diversification means always having to say you're sorry because there's always but, but again, going to be some market this, outperforming you somewhere. This is why I think it's important to talk about like the, 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 what I love about managed futures that no other category can do is the ability to stack its whatever strategy on top of whatever you really care about, right? And so this is, this is a, a tool that is often talk about it rarely used that through return stacking, we can now use, right? The fact that you can have, you don't have to see your story anymore, right? If you have a stack, a, a future uh -oh. strategy, yeah, Mike, Mike, just strike me down. Both of you, Jason, Mike. disclaimer. He's already said advice. sorry. Uh, you should apologize sorry. less if you have a diversified portfolio. We will apologize less than just a concentrated short-term trend manager, blah, blah. My point is, the more by, by, from first principles, the more diversification, the more non-correlated strategies, the higher your Sharpe ratio. Can we, can we agree that that's true? Yes? All right. Now, the, problem the, higher, yes. <laughs> the problem with the higher Sharpe ratio is that when you're taking it away from the thing that you care about the most, fangs maybe, then you are taken away and you're suffering the pain of tracking error. The beautiful thing about return about futures is that you can use the collateral allotted to you by those positions in order to stack to lever on top and stack on top, right? And so, in, but that that tool's amazing, and it's only that you can something you can do with derivatives and, and futures is the easiest access to do that through for retail, and you can do other things, right? We're talking about the sixty forty portfolio. The return stacking is sixty forty plus the stack, but. Um, there's been opportunities for us to where investors come in and say, listen, I, I had a, I have this big stock position that I'm going to donate someday, but I don't want to sell it. It's a big tax consequence. So can you use that as collateral to create a full exposure to futures? And that's, you can't do that with almost with, with equities and borrowing. You can, but it's just so much more efficient to do it with futures space. So I think in our wholesome conversation about this category, I think that is a, a, a part of a space that is not talked about enough and should be explored in many different ways. Again, that single stock position, I'm never going to sell it. I'm going to give it to charity till the day I die. I don't want to pay taxes on. So what can you do with that? That's kind of neat, right? That's, that's a neat thing that you can add in stack returns that you can scrape off of that collateral that you're able to get from a big stock position if you can get a collateral. So and this speaks really to use for 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 managed a use case for managed futures for sure. Yep, collateralizing <laughs> with with a uh, a large single stock position or or a few that you don't want to sell and for it, tax purposes or for other reasons. Um, it's highly inefficient of that to have a highly concentrated position. Um, period. So how do you do that if you're not going to? What are you going to do if you get rid of it? And what the the standard approach is? Well, let's let's. Let's engage in a derivative that will hedge the downside on it, and you just end up paying something. And, and this this approach just allows you to be so much more efficient in overlay stack um, uh, some uh, something on top, as as institutions have been doing for a very very long time. And and the the key is really just uh, it's it's a responsibly yeah, selecting what you stack, right? And the the risk is a lot of people aren't responsible enough to do that. Uh, and, and that causes problems. It gets dumped in the excess leverage bucket, but that's not what this is. No, yeah, but this speaks no. also to what Rodrigo was speaking, uh, talking earlier about, which is the uh, 
advent of mutual funds and ETFs that can use thoughtful leverage and can invest in futures contracts, which also speaks to your earlier question uh, to Jason, you know, back when he started in the business and, and, and sort of in the early days of managed futures, you did not have those, those allocations. So it really was a very narrow subset of investors that could access these contracts that can get exposure to these asset classes through futures. I mean, look, can we just admit how crazy it is that the vast majority of funds that manage futures have 90% of the, 80 to 90% of their assets in cash, right? That you're buying units. Of, if <laughs> It was such a bombastic, yeah, we, we, such we, a bombastic had... <laughs> statement that Ani Jason, just, just Jason, pressed the eject you, button on him. Yeah, Jason hit the button on him. That's right. <laughs> Frozen. Eject. Power's gone. Just to clarify, too, on some of the the stacking points, right? Like the idea idea being that, so you stack a bunch of different strategies together. You you stack a full full trend strategy, right? So you take the the SG trend index and you you jack it up to full vol, the, the same vol as the SG trend index, right? And then you stack another strategy that's that's uncorrelated on it. And another strategy that's uncorrelated on it, another one, you've got all these strategies running at the same volatility as the SG trend index. Well, if they're all uncorrelated, the final portfolio of all those strategies is running at half the vol, but you're getting the same expected return, right? But the point is, in that stack, there is a full allocation to the trend index, right? It's not diluted. It's a full allocation to the trend index. Now, it's possible that some of the other strategies that you've stacked on top or stacked with it have negative returns when the trend index is having positive returns. And so you're going you're gonna to underperform the trend index on, on occasion. That's absolutely possible, right? Um, but you still have a full allocation of trend. And guess what? There's other ancillary benefits here. You've got, you've got um, trade netting. So imagine you're a manager that acknowledges they love trend, but they also really want to get diversity in uh, through other strategies. They want to use the capital efficiency of futures. So they'd love to get um, diversification by allocating to other futures managers that are doing something different than trend. And then you got to allocate to four different funds typically. Now, all of those funds run at whatever volatility they run at. And now you've got this, kind of diluted, low volatility um, set of exposures where if you had instead allocated to a manager that runs all of those strategies together at full vol and then acknowledging that when you put them all together, the vol goes down and then they re-lever it up to get the same vol. Now you're getting a lot more money in your pocket because you can take advantage of that. And also you've got all these strategies, if they're uncorrelated, one is saying you should be long market A on the same, at the same time, or you should be buying more of market A at the same time as another strategy saying you should be selling some of market A. And so you get rid of a lot of unpredict, unproductive trading, right? So that actually can have a huge impact. I mean, let's not forget, trading costs have a huge impact on performance. The ability to net trades of a variety of uncorrelated strategies against one another, net, net, 
is almost guaranteed to improve the, the long-term performance of the strategy because you are trading less, but still taking advantage of the exact same signals, right? Plus you get to use the, the re-leveraging. So there's a lot of advantages to running all of these strategies in one portfolio, but it still doesn't guarantee that you're always gonna outperform or keep up with the best performing strategy in the stack. Adam, who would be crazy enough to build a business around something that complex? I have to explain <laughs> seven different strategies, so you'd be a lunatic. <laughs> anyway, yeah, I, all, all that is, um, I mean, it's exactly the point we're trying to make, is that future space can be many things. It has unique characteristics that allow us to use that leverage with low margin requirements. There's a, you can just, the innovation is endless, really. I think it's the, it, you can innovate in many different ways with enough time. Um, and even with the same edges, you can still innovate on the way you use the market. Yeah. Maybe you're trading one market against another. Maybe you're, you're looking for relationships between front month contracts and back month contracts. There's, a, there's an infinite variety of, maybe you're using information from one set of markets to inform trades on other markets. There's, just, there's an endless variety of different, maybe you're saying, you know, a, a, tr a short-term trend has a different relationship with, with forward price when long-term trends are positive than it does when long-term trends are negative. There's all these different ways of slicing and dicing the innovation opportunity. And, you know, I just think it's, it's amazing to have so many different prototyped opportunities to improve portfolio performance on a plate and a team that's, that is, you know, built to get the most out of it. And, and on a daily basis as well, like the, the multi-strategy fund to fund guys a decade or two ago, tried a lot of this and it, it looked good on paper, but actually making try, trying to execute it, even if they took signals and tried to execute themselves and, and uh, use some of the capital efficiency, uh, benefits that we can derive to do that on a daily basis is was very 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 difficult and obviously uh, you know, with futures and with the the uh, experience and and, and uh, tech we can add to the mix it's it's uh, more and more possible. Not to mention the fact that and this is something that Chris Schindler brought up as an institutional allocator is that if you're doing a fund of funds you're paying performance fees within those fund of funds. Yes. And so every time a fund is doing well, you're, they're scalping some of your returns while the other one's doing poorly and you're rebalancing in with a different high water mark. And all of a sudden you're diluting even further because in contrast to a multi-strat that is all encompassed in one, one single strategy, one single fund. Right? So that's, that's the other layer of cost that we don't see when it comes to putting multiple managers together in an alternative sleeve, for example. Right? Well, that's, that's actually a really good point. That's a super good point because... Mathematically, the end investor takes home a higher percentage of the total profits on all things equal on a strategy with a higher sharp ratio. So at the same level of all, you've got two managers and one of them has a higher sharp ratio. They're both charging, let's say, two and 20. Then the manager with the higher, the, the fund with the higher sharp ratio ends up paying out more P&L to the end investor than the manager with the lower sharp ratio because 
the manager with the lower sharp ratio is getting paid more performance fees on noise on on volatility than on performance relative to the manager with the higher sharp ratio, right? So imagine you're combining three or four lower sharp ratio products, each with performance fees together. You're paying performance fees individually to those managers. Um, the take home from the end investor is gonna be lower and, and in some cases substantially lower than an investor who allocates to the same set of managers but where all of those managers trade their strategies in the same account with trade netting and, um, and, and charge performance fees on the aggregate strategy then rather than the individual strategies independently. So that's, that's actually huge and something that's not talked about enough. And that Schindler, I think, does a good job of, of alerting people to. I think what, what podcast was that with Schindler? Second podcast? Maybe the first, no, I think it was the first podcast that we did with um, Look, to wrap things up, I'd like to kind of go back to the portfolio construction aspect of where does managed futures fit in? And uh, Milan Jurek, I think at, at 457, uh, had a question that I thought was interesting. He said, for a different topic, trend strategies with equities are killing traditional all-weather approach with long-term bonds, gold, et cetera, at least as of late. And I think this is an important topic because the concept of all weather is has been tied to the idea of getting a long only portfolio and diversifying across those different economic regimes of high and low inflation and high and low growth right if you put those um those impacts together and identify which asset classes are likely to act differently in different regimes it would be things like long-term bonds and gold and equities right when you, if you weight them in the right Way risk parity concept and Bridgewater has coined their approach all weather, but Bridgewater also has an alpha product. They're all they're a pure alpha product. Now, why is that? So to answer your question, Milan, why have long short strategies been killing it? Well, it's precisely because of long and short. It's there is, in spite of the fact that all weather or risk parity has filled in the major blind spots of inflation and growth there are two other major blind spots that they don't do a good job. The first major blind spot that we've seen in 2020, in, in uh, October of 08, is sentiment risk. So Adam um, went through this in, I think, our last podcast of the year, where the different shocks to markets and what it, what it does. But sentiment risk is one of abrupt change in sentiment, where everybody just, you know, cash goes from being trashed to being the one thing that everybody covets, right? all assets go down together. That type of shock, it doesn't matter how well diversified you are across long-term regimes, um, you're gonna get hurt. So that's a major blind spot that uh, quote unquote all weather or risk parity has. The other major blind spot is liquidity, right? So we've had uh, 10 years of abundant liquidity being injected into markets. And when liquidity is being injected by the Fed into the bond market, it filters into the equity market, into the mortgage market, it floats all boats, right? So there is this liquidity thrust that you benefit from. Well, if there's a reversal of that, you know, there's gonna be some pain and it's gonna, it, there's a liquidity risk there where all assets may suffer. And so it is the reason that you're seeing um, managed futures doing better than any all weather in this particular period is because they were able to short 
bonds. They were able to go long commodities. They were able to short copper, palladium, platinum half the way through the year. Like there's there's dynamics that a traditional long only portfolio can't do. Like and, and so when you stack, and you, you got your all weather, and then you stack your futures strategy on top to fill in that long term uh, liquidity gap, and then you have possibly some tail protection strategies to fill in the sentiment risk. That then you have you go from all weather to all terrain, right? A, a, a vehicle that can actually get through most uh, economic conditions. So I think that's what that's that's a good question. That's what you're seeing. I don't think it's one or the other. I think it's both. Yeah, why choose? Exactly, it's both. Yeah. yeah. <clears throat> well, gents, we're an hour and forty minutes in. I think we covered all our ground. Anything that you guys feel we need to touch on before we, we wrap things up on this topic? Just that Mike Harris said that all weather is trademarked and he uses all season and that we are claiming all terrain. All terrain. That's right. All terrain TM. Exactly. And you heard it here first. Else. I TM'd it in Peru. <laughs> Let's see if it sticks. Jason, you look like you had something to say, no? I just, I'm just thinking. I mean, I'm, I'm, I've been at this for a while, and I just, just looking at the terrain ahead, um, with the, you know, you've talked uh, Rod about um, uh, volatility dropping, liquidity going up. Or actually, you didn't say volatility dropping, but as liquidity goes up, volatility drops. As uh, correlations rise, um, the uh, uh, diversification benefits diminish. And I think we're really stepping into a, a, a terrain where with, with high inflation or higher inflation or less stable inflation, we're going to see more differences between central bank policies. We're going to see uh, more interesting reactions. You see the energy situation in Russia, how that affects steel in Germany. Um, all of these things create dislocations that we are very uniquely positioned to take great advantage of. Um, and I, I'm, I'm pretty excited about the, the, the days ahead, not making any predictions, but just looking at the terrain and thinking a lot of people have been trained in this last 10 or 15 years in this environment. And um, we're well aware and we have the battle scars to prove that we've uh, shown that awareness um, that, that there are other terrains out there. And uh, it's, it's more than just the weather. <laughs> so uh, I would say I would say uh, it's 40 years, Jason. Right, like there was a, a bit of a period there, but 40 years of. If, if you're a veteran in this industry, and I met somebody today that said he was in the business for 41 years, and I'm like, you almost made it. You almost made it into the previous reality, right? But you're yeah. still at 41 years. You've only experienced 70 to 85 percent of your existence as a professional investor has been persistent growth, uh, abundant liquidity, and benign inflation. Right? Right? That's your existence. And that's your experience. But the previous 80 years were fraught with inflation volatility, kind of what we're seeing now. And that requires a whole different type of vehicle. One might say an all-terrain vehicle. <laughs> yeah, it, it does feel like with that cheesy ending. The He's opportunity week, set. Folks. Don't forget yeah. to tip your waiter. <laughs> <laughs> Don't forget to tip your waiter. Oh, God. Anyway. Yeah, it does feel like the opportunity set in markets has changed. And uh, it feels like the buy and hold stock bond portfolios that have persisted for the last 
10 to 12 years, almost uninterrupted, and by some measures uh, since the early 80s, uh, and, and, and have flown sort of ahead of the pack, uh, how, are coming into some, some challenging periods, and, and, and investors would do well to, to look outside of the uh, US 6040 universe. And with that, gents, I think this is a good place to pause. Thank you, everyone, for joining. Like, share, and subscribe. For yeah, who's on next week? Uh, We got is it Weidinger next week? Jeff Weidinger, right? Yeah, from uh, from Wisdom Tree. So that'll be fun. We'll dive into some uh, global macro reality right now and its impact on global growth and inflation characteristics and all kinds of fun stuff. So that will be. I get to uh, stretch my global macro legs, Mike. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You, you can. The You're whole not invited. Hour. What are you talking about? Yeah. <laughs> oh man. <laughs> all right, guys. All right, all right guys. let's let these guys go. Glad to be back. Have a great weekend. Forward to our future Fridays. Cheers. Thank you all. That's right. See Thank you for listening to the Gestalt University podcast. You will find all the information we highlighted in this episode by visiting investresolve.com forward slash podcasts. We also encourage you to engage with us on Twitter by searching the handle at InvestorsAll. If you're enjoying the series, please take the time to share us with your friends through email or social media. And if you really learned something new and believe that this podcast would be helpful to others, we would be incredibly grateful if you could leave us a review on iTunes. Thanks again, and see you next time. Most investors feel comfortable with their domestic equity and bond portfolios because they tend to thrive during periods of economic growth and low inflation. And we don't blame you. It's been a great ride. But it's a big world out there full of opportunities you may be ignoring. Sadly, we live in a world dominated by a fear of missing out, or FOMO. And in the last 10 years, U.S. equities and bonds have outperformed and generated massive amounts of FOMO. This hasn't always been the case. In the mid-2000s, the best-performing markets were international equities, especially emerging markets, golden commodities. So what happens if growth collapses and inflation becomes the new norm? Or what if the U.S. dollar collapses and U.S. assets are no longer attractive? What will the new FOMO markets be? And will your portfolio keep up or be left behind? Enter Rational Resolve Adaptive Asset Allocation Fund, ticker RDMIX a strategy that is designed to thrive across different markets and economic regimes. Unlike most traditional strategies that keep allocation static and let volatility happen, adaptive asset allocation applies a proprietary systematic process designed to dynamically transition toward thriving asset classes and eliminate those that are not, all the while aiming for consistent volatility and stable returns. There's almost always a bull market somewhere in the world. Don't let yesterday's FOMO get in the way of tomorrow's opportunities. Instead, let Adaptive Asset Allocation help you fill in your domestic portfolio gaps. To learn more, visit RationalMF.com and check out the Rational Resolve Adaptive Asset Allocation Fund.